ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nighttime Show, live from the Hollywood Improv. As always, we have producer and head writer Matt Walker. We're lucky enough today to have Stephen Kramer Glickman's childhood friend, Saba Javadani. Our amazing, incredible guest today is executive producer and head writer of 144 episodes of Beverly Hills 90210, Charles Rosen. And of course, your host, the man who can't stop smiling because his face was just made that way, Stephen Kramer Glickman. Hey guys, how are we how are we doing? Uh, I miss Mike Black. That's, yeah, that's I miss Mike know. Black too. <laughs> he'll he'll be back soon. How are you, Matt? You doing well? Doing great. Good. You look good. Thank you. you. Look skinny as always. That is true. Uh, everything been all right? You doing all right? Yeah, doing good. Looking forward to the next nighttime show live. Yeah, nighttime fun. show live. Next one is August twenty seventh. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of wonderful people going to be on that show. And our last one was really incredible. Fresh Brothers Pizza came out, did uh, twenty two pizzas for the entire audience. We gave away pizza to the entire yeah. room, and uh, there was a line uh, down the street to get oh, in. It was, it was insane. We were completely and totally sold out. Fireball whiskey was there. Mm-hmm. We gave away fireball to the audience. It was a huge, huge Give big away night. Pokeballs. Yeah, yeah. It was a big night. And Pikachu uh, showed up. Yeah, and you know. Who who else showed up? My childhood friend uh, who yes. I've known since I'm 13, Saba Javadani's here. Hi, Steve. Hey, buddy. How are you? <laughs> Is that a real nice name, Saba? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Saba is a, a, a very uh, handsome Persian fellow. Uh-huh. Uh, we've known each other since junior high school, where we were both uh, bullied a lot for being <laughs> giant nerds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saba less so, though, because people like Saba. Yes. I was I was outlandish and annoying and ran around wearing stupid clothes, and I think it. Uh, I think that that I, caught... I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah, Saba, how are you? Doing good. Good. My voice sounds really good on this. Yeah, I like this. it's very. Uh, it's very Saba is single, and so is Matt. So, <laughs> ladies, pick your uh, pick your brand. Saba, so, ladies, if there's any seniors out there, Saba's available for you. Saba <laughs> dates all sorts of women. All right, not just old women. Not just uh, yeah, but occasionally know. old women. Uh, Matt sometimes dates horrendous singers. <laughs> we were listening to his ex girlfriend sing today, and it's just as a living yeah. nightmare. Uh, we need to jump right into this, guys. Uh, this is it's a really big deal that we have him here because um, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up watching this TV show Beverly Hills Now Two and and it influenced everything that I knew about what it was like to be cool. Like I like it really, it really, really did. I was like, you got to have sideburns. Well, that right? explains everything. Right. <laughs> I was like, you got to have good hair. You know, there was uh there was, there were, and then, you know, like they had so many great cast members on the show and it was such an interesting show with so many different levels and, and, uh, and a lot of crazy stuff. I learned a lot watching the show and it was an amazing, it was amazing show. And as a, you know, uh, a big part of my my childhood but um 144 episodes the executive producer uh ladies and gentlemen charles rosen's here come on yeah that'd be me how are you buddy very well thanks dude it's so incredible to have you here with us uh you and i got to work together recently with gabrielle carteras yes yes uh for uh a charity event that was 
very just a, a, a hilarious and very fun time. It was a really good time. Did you have fun? Absolutely. It was a live podcast of one of the episodes, the when Donna Martin graduates. <laughs> it's so classic. <laughs> and, Such a classic uh, episode. We filled up uh, a theater in Beverly Hills, and uh, we got a lot of uh, a lot of laughs and a lot of fun. And- oh yeah. Now, and- does does Charles know about what happened with your shoelaces? Uh, no, Charles, do you know about what happened? I'm, uh, I'm, we're standing in line. Uh, we're you and me and, uh, and the woman who played Miss Teasley. Denise Dow. Denise Dow. Yeah. So amazing. And then the rest of the cast who were all playing the young kids on the show, they were all, uh, cast members from like Pretty Little Liars and from, uh, uh, Vampire Diaries and from all these amazing shows. It was, it was insane. Like they were so talented. Those kids were amazing and very good looking. So, uh, it's you and me and, uh, and, and Denise and, um, of course, Gabrielle Carteris, who is the president of SAG AFTRA. Mm-hmm. And she's standing behind me and she goes, uh, Steven. And I go, um, uh, yes, Madam President. Like I was like very <laughs> super nervous to talk to her, and she goes, uh, "Your shoes are untied," and I go, "Oh!" And she goes, "I got it," and gets down on her knees and ties my shoes backstage, and people are like looking, and I'm like, "What? What is happening right now?" I'm like, "Okay, first of all, just as a fan of her and a fan of the show, I was I was sweating and panicking that this was happening, and then of course." the amount of uh, regard that I hold for her as the president of SAG after of, of my union, like she was so insane. She earned your and, vote forever. Oh, I will president. vote for her forever. She well, was incredible. Well, service is a big part of being yes. the president and there's nothing, no task too small. Clearly. Yeah. Her, her daughter was like, that's my mom just being a mom. Like that's what yeah. she does. You know, it's she'll a, just tie It's the old shoes. political thing. You know, you go, you kiss babies, you tie shoes. That's what Maybe you do. That's well, a politician. When I was doing the show, and I'd come in on a Monday morning, just dragging my ass because we had so many episodes to do. Mm-hmm. Gabrielle would always say, we used to call Gabrielle the adult because she'd always say, hi, how are you? How was your weekend? What? And I always said the exact same thing. Really? Was it a weekend? <laughs> All ran together. But she was, uh, she was incredible. Also, she was very driven towards... Uh, charitable activities before it was vogue so she used the power of the stardom of the kids i remember once to get a van from dodge or one of the car companies that was given then to a um like meals on wheels kind of thing for aids people i mean and it was all her and she's like you know in her 20s what was she the uh, as far as the cast and like ages of the cast members was she the older of the cast members. Well, she took a lot of shit for that. I think <laughs> yeah. you know the the you know Gabby the granny and all of that, and, oh, I, and I, particularly I I felt and she and I've talked about this after she gave birth and came back, you know she looked like a mother and she didn't look like a sophomore in college. But sure. I but I felt she really uh, in the high school she. She really just projected the essence of the character, and that's all you can ever ask for. Yeah, I know, absolutely, absolutely. Now, you st- did you start on this show from like from day one? Were you there from the beginning, or when did you come in? Well, I wasn't involved with the pilot. Got it. The series was created by Darren Starr, and the original ex- um, executive producers were uh, Aaron Spelling, of course, but also a company called Propaganda, um, which was the biggest, coolest. Uh, advertising company and and they did a lot of music uh, music videos. I guess that was the so some of their frontline people. I could just start and stop with David Fincher, but we oh go my on. God. Leslie Linka Gladder, 
Um, uh, just a lot of people who've had really wonderful. Uh, uh, what's his name? Michael Bay. Oh so my God! This was really? A, really a powerhouse. It was a very cool group of people, and there was always that dichotomy of here's this kind of uh, uh, a company that did all the post production for um, Twin Peaks. And at the same time, they're doing an Aaron Spelling show about high school in Beverly Hills. There was a little <laughs> bit of a disconnect going wow. on. Oh but I God. came in at uh, after the pilot was shot. Yeah. I usually say that I um, got the job for three different reasons. Yeah. One is because I went to Beverly Hills High School. And this was mm-hmm. a series about Beverly Hills. So they figured I might remember something. Amazing. Second, I was av- available. I had just come off of uh, Northern Exposure, and there was a period of time for me to 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 do this. Mm-hmm. And third, no one else wanted the job, so <laughs> they gave it to me, a first time showrunner. Uh, I spent most of my career writing television movies and pilots. The pilots weren't made, and after a while, most of the television movies were made. Right. So I was really n- known much more as that. I had never been on; I hadn't been on too many series. Certainly, no, you, you, not, no, you wrote a little on Saint Elsewhere, right? I did a little Saint Elsewhere, with the, yeah. and those were the same guys who did Northern Exposure. Sure. I yeah. met all of them back at the White Shadow. Wow! Oh, I love the White Shadow. Can we go back to the White Shadow. Yes, we do. Yeah, White Shadow. Uh, uh, Matt, you know, real quick before we continue, um, I had a weird thing recently. I had a, another fireball moment. A fireball moment? Yeah, you know, like a fireball moment. That's like when you drink fireball whiskey and then uh, just, you know, something amazing and extraordinary happens. Mm-hmm. You know, like cause when you drink fireball whiskey, you never know what's Yeah, crazy happen. stuff happens. Crazy right. stuff happens. Yeah, no, it's true. So, um, you know, we were, uh, we were doing the nighttime show live and having this, you know, great time and everybody was having fun. And as the night was coming to an end here at the, you know, Hollywood Improv, mm-hmm. I, uh, I did, uh, uh, two shots, mm-hmm. you know, at the bar, um, really great stuff. And, uh, of, uh, of the, of fireball. And then, uh, I started wandering to my car, but somehow I got lost on Melrose. I turned down a corner. I turned another corner. I turned a different way and I ended up in this forest, um, mm-hmm. which I, I guess now is a park that's nearby, but I, uh, it was a much bigger park than I've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So now I'm wandering through this park at like two o'clock in the morning. It's very, very dark and I can see the trees and you can hear, you know, everything buzzing. And I swear to you out of nowhere, I see Bigfoot. Wow. Yeah. Like the Bigfoot. The Bigfoot. He comes. Did he look like uh, Harry and the Henderson's He Bigfoot? was vi- like, just like, just like that. <laughs> wow. Like very kind of ape-like, but very, very tall, really huge muscles and gigantic. And he comes around the corner and I froze. I was very scared. All yeah, right? I think if you see Bigfoot, you got to stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. I stopped. I got real scared. And I look over and I go, I go, oh, my gosh. Uh, I go, Bigfoot, it's, it, it, are you Bigfoot? Yes. Bigfoot. That's what Yeti he said. Bigfoot. I said, oh, wow. Uh, well, uh, hey there, Bigfoot. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. No pictures. Oh. <laughs> I can't. I don't. Everyone wants a selfie. I don't have time. I can't. They put on the Instagram the whole thing, and they always the wrong filter. Do they face swap with it. you? Always. Uh, Every, they, I face can't the they do. They face swap with him. I it's can't a- go five minutes without the face swap. I don't like it. 
And you don't even think, they, like, you wouldn't even think the app would be able to recognize the face because it's so right. enormous and, the and kids, different. They have no class. They just take the picture. They don't, hi, how are you? My name's Marty, what have you. No, they just, they just start, take a picture. Start flashing they take right, a picture away. right away. It's the, so rude. Oh, uh, the photo bomb. Don't get me started I, on the photo bomb. It's too much. Sometimes they do uh, fingers over your head. They sure. do bunny ears. I'm trying to eat a unicorn, and I, halfway through, these kids come up, and they get behind me with the thing and the, oh the, yeah we're gonna hashtag oh, i can't have it so basically i get i matt you know i was mm-hmm. i was very hungry and so i turned to bigfoot and i said uh hey bigfoot do you want to maybe go to Cantor's? i would love to go to Cantor's. Mm-hmm. yeah it turns out bigfoot is like a huge fan of Cantor's. of course yeah he's like he said his favorite kind of fish is Gefilte, gefilte fish. fish. Gefilte fish. Yeah, yeah, so we go there. We have some gefilte fish. We have a nice matzo ball soup. A nice soup. I had one more shot of fireball whiskey, mm-hmm. and out of nowhere, out of nowhere, I'm not kidding you, he vanished. Wow. Yeah, I'm telling you, fireball whiskey, you never know what kind of adventures you're going to have. All right, I let's get back to the show. I don't pay the check. I love it. No, no. So, so once, uh, so once you started working on the show, so what, like, ins- what did they tell you when you when you came in? Like, what, how did they explain the show to you? Well, <laughs> um, the the they sent me the show, and the show was two hours, and I um, was really tired from doing Northern Exposure. We had, you know, we had small kids. I was a you know dad, and. Um, and I fell asleep watching the pilot. So I had my choice. Go back and keep watching the pilot or write the script of Northern Exposure that I'm being paid to do. So I did, went there, wasn't really thinking the show was for me. And, and yet uh, my agent called the next day and said, Aaron Spelling really wants to meet you. And I figured that anytime you can meet a titan yeah. You're a real legend. Why, why not do it? And I had done that throughout my career mm-hmm. with no expectation that I would be doing this show. Uh, but then, truthfully, and this could sound very Hollywood, but it was the truth. Um, then my agent told me how much they would pay me to do this show if I would do it. <laughs> sounded pretty good to me, certainly much more than I had done with the movie, yeah. television, and the pilots. And I went in to meet Aaron. And... You know, he was really smart in a lot of ways. I mean, we, we had a very um, complicated relationship. Most relationships Aaron Spelling had were complicated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what was really interesting about him at that point was that this was a year that there was a lot of high school shows going on, uh, being ordered. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air mm-hmm. was starting. There was um, uh, Hull High on Disney, Kenny Ortega, kind of the 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 you know, a precursor to, to Glee kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, music and dancing. And, and then there was something called Parker Lewis can't lose. And oh, then there sure. was Ferris yeah. Bueller days off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then was saved by the bell back then. It might have, it was on daytime, but okay, yeah, yeah, you know, a morning, but, but yes. And, um, and then there's this little show from Aaron Spell on this, right. on this fledgling network. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't the top billing and Aaron uh, had looked at the pilot and really let the creative forces, um, from propaganda kind of control, I think control a lot of the aesthetic. Darren Stark can speak more intelligently about that than, than me. But um, he kind of knew that he couldn't 
out-hip the room. He couldn't do MTV. He didn't like MTV. And so he came to me, who was known as writing social drama for television, and said, I want the show to be more. I want to deal with the issues teenagers deal with. Yeah. Well, that was music to my ear. As a, uh, I used to refer myself at that time, and, and looking back at it, I think it's apt, as a highly paid propagandist. You know, sure. oh, you're going to give me a show and I can put messages in about social issues. Oh, this sounds pretty good. <laughs> that sounds great. So, um, Aaron asked me to go back and watch the show again. And I said to Aaron, okay, I'll watch it. And after I finish it, if, um, after one hour, I'll give myself one hour to come up with 10 ideas. And that I think would make for good episodes. Mm -hmm. And if we, um, and if I can do that, I'll do the show. Great. So my wife, who you met the other night, Karen, yeah, very nice. she, who wrote a lot, best episodes for the show. Uh, I think she and Darren did some really good stuff. Um, she and I watched the pilot and, um, we started, we ended it, and it took us 58 minutes to get the 10th episode, but we got it. <laughs> wow. And uh, I walked in, uh, took the job, and I, what I remember most about that first, Aaron Spelling's office was huge. It was like a football field, mm -hmm. and it had lots of, like, you didn't know where to sit. There were so many couches and this, all with what you'd expect, you know, cigarettes, in waiting because it was a different, you know, if you sat here, you could smoke a cigarette. If you sat over there, there were all, you know, always bunches of cigarettes yeah. and that, and you could eat it, you know, they'll bring anything out to you, his butlers and things. And I'm talking about the Warner Hollywood studios. Oh, amazing. And there I am in, in for my first time, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, he had a, 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 a guy who was running his company at the time. And the company had, you know, Aaron Spelling's years of television were really the 70s and the 80s. He was, had an exclusive contract for ABC. And it was known as not the American Broadcasting Company, but Aaron's Broadcasting mm -hmm. Company. It's right. so many shows, you know, Charlie's yeah. Angels and Love Boat and, and all of them. Dynasty, all yeah. of them, you know. <clears throat> and then it went down to nothing. And so the only thing he had was this pilot up for Beverly Hills 90210, which at that point was called the Class of Beverly Hills. Um, it was largely done as a favor by Barry Diller to his old friend and mentor, Aaron Spelling. And so there was this kind of air of despair, not despair, despair under the surface, but that the best times had passed. Got it. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that he was no longer current. And, and Hollywood, all those producers that couldn't get their shows on at ABC and this was gleeful yeah. that this era had passed. They finally have a shot. And, now, and, you know, Spelling was the counter to the, what I'll call MTM. Mm -hmm. The more intelligent shows, the yeah. stuff that Bochco did and, and uh, the comedies of Taxi and Cheers and all that stuff. He was not that. He was right. more you know, bright colors and establishing shots and, and, and sexy, but not, you know, sexual, you know, kind sure, of yeah, you know, I diff get that. different, you know, the whole, the whole aesthetic. Anyway, the guy who had no other shows, the guy, his name is Jules Heimovitz. He puts me into, he says, come, come when you're done with Aaron, come see me. And I go to, to see him and I sit down and he says to me, 
Chuck, I'm going to say something to you right now that I can tell by just meeting you that no one has ever said to you before. You are management. Because I had always been labor. You know, excuse me, I was a reporter, I was a writer and this kind of thing. And I was surprised that I actually took to being management. Since I was trying to smash the state for so many years, it was a <laughs> right, yeah. oh, I am the state. Okay. Um, wow. So it was a very interesting thing. We were the lowest license fee in television, meaning we had less money to spend than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were non-union. Who does a non-union what? television show wow. in Los Angeles wow. on for prime time? What? Well- were they ca- were the cast non the cast was no non-union? no no when you do non union it you know oh, you the, mean non union crew non union crew oh, but no wow. Iyat- not Iatsi. got it and to do that in Los Angeles is kind of really um, kind of a dare yeah you know yeah. especially then and it was this feeling that we can do low budget television non union and we don't need them well they went. <laughs> They started picketing us like the second week. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And it really got down to um, a vote by our crew after about the fifth or sixth, seventh episode. And I remember um, Shannon Doherty addressed the crew and saying, we're with you and right on and strike. You know, she was very pro worker, although, mm-hmm. you know, she's a Republican. But nonetheless, yeah. she was with them. And, uh, and I stood up and said, guys. We are the third lowest rated show on television. If you go and vote for a strike, you think we're going to get awarded back? We're not. This is it. You know, this is, you know, so you you really have the the fate of the show in your hands. And they voted to to stay non-union by one vote. Wow. The next year, they voted to um, become a union by one vote. And wow. my our, our producer, wonderful guy who came in about the after the sixth episode of the first year, a fellow named Paul Wagner, who uh, he basically said, you know, guys, if you're going to be union, then I can work with anybody we want, anybody mm-hmm. on the list. And and out of that group, which was a good group, only one guy was invited back to to work the next year, mm. and uh, he was invited back because he played golf with Jason Priestley. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's wow. The, that's the oh world. Now you mentioned God. you were a reporter before you did any of this. How, how did that start with you? Um, well, I was really groomed to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I thought I would be a lawyer. And I got a job. I went to Washington. Uh, I went to school at, at Berkeley. Okay. And I went to Washington, uh, D.C. as an intern. And I had pretensions of wanting to write. And, and yet, I would read the laws of the land. And as I said to my dad when I got back from Washington, there's, there's no adjectives in the law. You know, it's not, didn't, didn't light me up too much. Yeah. So I... Um, but I started working for my, my college newspaper, The Daily Cal. Uh, I went to graduate school. My dad really wanted me to go to graduate school, and I did. It was a good experience. I worked for WBUR, which is the NPR affiliate of Boston. And, and it all things considered, it just become mm-hmm. national. The busing was going on. I got, yeah. a, got to do a lot of stuff and, and, uh, and came. But I still knew that I kind of wanted to be a scriptwriter. In fact, when I graduated from Berkeley, I stayed up there that summer to kind of play softball and just transition into life. Mm-hmm. But my, what I did is I wrote um, every morning 
a, a, a screenplay because I wanted to see that I have the discipline to write. Doesn't, the talent is fungible. You either yeah. you know you have that or not. But can you be by yourself in a room mm-hmm. writing all day? Yeah. And I learned, hey, I, I can't do that. I am a misanthrope. I don't like people. So I'm, I can be by myself. It's fine. Um, and so I knew that coming back, I had made a documentary film. It was in uh, Filmex was the L.A. Uh, film Festival. It was chosen for that. It was on public television. It was about a blues singer. It was, it was a lot of fun and great to make it. And I wanted to make more documentaries. Mm-hmm. There was no business. Uh, unlike now, I, 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 I'm so envious of all these documentary filmmakers uh, who, who get to you know, really grapple yeah. the subject and do such great stuff. Like you know, at that was- time, I remember Ken Burns' first documentary was 1980, uh, done about the Brooklyn Bridge. And it, it took him probably a good 12 years before he had anything that really sort of blew up with the civil war when that one finally came out and was well, a big deal. Well, he was based in Boston mm-hmm. and he was making a documentary this summer. I was, and we both rented equipment from the same place Wow! and talked with him a few times. Yeah. No, he, he was Boston based Boston, a pretty small community. And that the was film our, community there is not too large. Not that yeah. big at that time, especially anyway, come back to Los Angeles and, um, they, I, there's no, nothing for me to do documentaries. Mm-hmm. And my dad um, was a pediatrician. He was a prominent doctor. And I realized to start my career, I had to camp out in his waiting room. But at least, not quite, but he had Michael Eisner and a, and a few <laughs> other people who were really were, were power brokers. But one of them was a really nice man uh, who was the showrunner of like Barnaby Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, so I, I met him and I said, okay, so you'll give me a Barnaby Jones. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I'd do that. But he, one thing he did say to me, he said, you know, if you can write news, mm-hmm. you can write scripts. Yeah. And I believed him, wrote a couple, and then I got a calling card script. I got something that was a uh, an article in the Village Voice about a little boy who, who sold pot on the street mm-hmm. and a woman who tried to help him. Incredible prose, kind of Charles Dickens-esque. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this, t- this movie. I thought it was a feature starring Terry Gar, in my mind. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, the feature people would read it, have these m- meetings mm-hmm. with, with, you know, the feature stuff and very, very, uh, um, you know, uh, very cool to be there. And they all said to me, this is a really good script. And we'll read anything else you, you write. <laughs> wow. And the television people who read it said, can you do this rewrite starting on Tuesday? So I gave up working for the California Apparel News, where mm-hmm. I was working as a freelance writer sure. because I had already written, I thought, a pretty good script. I wasn't going to write a better script yeah. than that one. So if that one's not going to get me work, sure. you know, I would probably go into my brother-in-law's business. I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I love it. Well, I want to take a, a walk through this cast list because here's the thing about this show. Um, every single person that was a, a cast member on the show, like the main... We'll say like there's like 10 or 15 people that were on the show that are iconic people. They have become iconic characters to television. They really have. And if I see them in public, I immediately start sweating and get very nervous and want to talk to them. I just saw Luke Perry in uh, in San Diego at Comic-Con. He had a giant beard. And I was like, what's up, beard brother? And he was like, hey, man. And we talked for like about two, three minutes. He was super, super nice. And I've had a lot of interactions with a bunch of these people because of my sister's book, you know, um, uh, Limelight, which you you read and you Terrific, you spoke yeah. to her about. Um, so let's just take a walk through some of these folks. Let's start with Jenny Garth, because I've, I've never met her, but she's uh, 
she's a really incredible seems like a very incredible very sweet uh person what uh what was your first impressions of her any uh well if you think about if you know the show i mean kelly taylor was supposed to be a snob and a mean girl right how can you make jenny garth a mean girl she's not a mean girl (laughs) she was a country girl i think at that point she had come out she was very she was the blonde you're going to fall in love with. She really was the the all-American blonde. I remember in one of the, the scenes that she um, did in the pilot, she wore um, like biker pants, bike pants, and they were that was brand new wearing that out in public. And she, she was really cute, really nice, um, and a real trooper. I mean, the one, one story that I know uh, we often tell is, you know, the... Um, the night where she and Dylan are on the beach and Sophie Hawkins is playing and they, you realize they're kind of a couple, damn, I wish you'd be my lover and Brenda's in Europe and all of that. Oh, yeah. She and, and Dylan were on, um, uh, what are the, you know, uh, jet skis? Jet skis. They were yeah. doing a jet ski thing up at Paradise Cove and it, and it wrapped around Jenny. And she almost drowned. I mean, she had to really go to an emergency room and all that. And oh then she came. God. And then she came back into that scene. That's wow. that is that is Jenny. That's my memory of Jenny Garth. And and uh, and you know, uh, we we had a nice. And I'll I'll put a coat on this on, on some of this. When we talk about the cast in 2013. It marked 20 years from when the class of West Beverly High, class of 93, graduated. So we had kind of a mini reunion. I live in Venice, and some people came down. And really to meet, so I could meet their children, and they could meet the little children they knew, and Lindsay Rosen and, yeah, and, my, yeah. and, and, and my others. And so it was a really nice, um, really nice occasion. And uh, we got to meet Jenny's daughters. And she's a really good mother, too, you know? I, I, I don't know if... She's always, you know, it's very hard to be an actress and um, an actor at all. And especially when you become that point where you start playing the mother roles and there are fewer and fewer roles. I don't know if she's going through that now or what, but um, she was a, she was a real pleasure. And look, you know, we, you know, Dylan had to choose between Brenda and Kelly. Uh, yeah. Well, who yeah. are you going to choose? Yeah, I would yeah. choose. I, I would be with his choice. So. Yeah, no, no, she did. She played. Uh, did she play the? She would play her big sister. She played. Uh, what's her name? Anna, Amanda Bynes's big sister. Right. On that show. Yes. Uh, that they did together. What I like about you, or uh, about what about you? Is that what it was called? What about right? What I like about you? Yeah, what I like about you. Right. Um. But yeah, watching her before transition, Amanda Bynes was a crazy person. Yes, before Amanda <laughs> Bynes lost her absolute <laughs> brain. Um. Who I still love. I still love Amanda Bynes. And I, we would love to have her on the show. Um, if you're out there, Amanda, please come come down. I she's still not ha- crazy enough to listen to this podcast. Amanda. <laughs> she's, she hasn't hit rock bottom yet. Amanda, so. I still have your shoes. All right? I still have them. All right. Um, she left them at my house. All right. So here's the, here's the thing. Uh you know, no, Jenny. Um, that what a that is such a tricky situation. Turning into becoming the mother role and 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 playing a role like that and having to leave being the uh, you know being the ingenue because she really was the ingenue on that show and she was. It's neat that they kind of cast her against type a little bit because if they were, they wanted her to be you know kind of you know the mean girl. 
but what's kind of well, they don't think they cast her against they type. Ca- they cast her for her cute looks. Yeah, and we one thing that I think can work sometimes is that you write for the personalities of your actors. Right, you write what the actors can do, and so she. You know, really pretty early on, our sixth episode was uh, called Perfect Mom, and she realizes that her uh, mother has fallen back on addiction, and Mm -hmm. she has to deal with that. Uh, Darren Starr wrote the script. It was really a terrific one. It was also the one, in that first year, we we were mandated to do, it's the Brandon episode, the Brenda episode, the Brandon episode, the Brenda episode, and all of a sudden, pretty early on, we throw in a Kelly episode. Yeah. So it rose her stock, and... um. I think uh, that's that, such a great feeling as an actor too. When you come in, you find out this is a, this is, this episode's more about you than it is about anybody else. Like I had that happen twice while doing this uh, kid show on Nickelodeon. And like, it was probably the greatest day of my life. And I walked in, they're like, this episode's all about you, buddy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then you have to like, you know, and then suddenly it's like, Oh, I'm going to get hit in the face with a bunch of pies. There's gonna be so much fun stuff to do. It was great. Um, let's jump to uh, Ian Ziering. I've only had one interaction with Ian Ziering. We almost got into a car accident together on uh, Sunset Boulevard. It was like 1997. No, yeah, <laughs> no flying shark. Okay. <laughs> but we've we only we've only met like once or twice. But I'm you know I think the guy is uh is pretty. He was he seemed like a, a fun uh, fun kind of wacky guy, kind of like a little bit of a troublemaker a little bit. Am I reading into that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I in, um. Well, his character that he played, Steve Sanders, I used to call a North of Sunset homeboy. And, you know, he played the rich boy. But he, you know, I really admire Ian. I mean, right at the start, the, 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 the spelling company was looking to save money. So they kind of demoted him in the first year. He wasn't even, you know, he wasn't being paid to be in every episode. And he wasn't happy about that. You would never know that from the performances that he did. And um, what I loved most about Ian's craft is it's hard for me to imagine anybody in in that kind of context that could do better ad-libs. The funny things at the end of the scenes, all Ian Ziering. Wow. Jason was okay with it. Luke um, needs to study improv. Back then, should have studied a little more improv. But but Ian was terrific. He you know he came out of Broadway. He's a song and dance guy. What? So when really so post nine hundred two and oh he fell into that. Oh, you're Steve Sanders. You can't play another role. You're only Steve Sanders. You're only going to be Steve Sanders. And what really and it was hard for him. I, I I believe. But I know what changed everything was him being on Dancing with the Stars because he could dance. Yeah. And, and even back then, you know, he was very good at it. Whereas Priestley never wanted to dance. He, yeah. he felt awkward. Yeah. Good, yeah. On, good on hockey with the hockey stick and the, and the ice skates. But. Yeah, no, we should talk about him. Uh, let's, let's, uh, Jason Priestley? Yes. Yeah, Jason Priestley, please. Pre- um, what, I've, such, a, such a talented guy and now such a phenomenal director. He's out there working, kicking ass. Yeah. Um, what uh, what what was your relationship like with him? Well, uh, Jay, Mister Spelling used to call Jason the quarterback. He really was the leader, and he really created kind of the tone of the show. So, what was some of the nicest things that would get back to us um, when actors would do the show, particularly guest star actors and stuff, 
is that this is the friendliest set. It was such a friendly set. He he did that. He would walk up to people and say, you know, kids would be frightened, especially after we became a hit and people, oh, I'm on 902. Hi, I'm oh, yeah. Jay. You know, he was very afraid. He liked the crew. Yeah. He was always, though, you know, he liked to race. He liked to uh, cars and hockey. I mean, he played, he smoked a lot of cigarettes. And I think even when his lungs collapsed, he was pretty much a young man with that. And, uh, oh. you know, he always took it to the edge. Um, but yep. I enjoyed, I mean, the truth is that what I brought most to this party in terms of the writing or character formation sure, yeah. is kind of, I, the, I'm a combination of Brandon and Steve, a lot more Brandon than Steve, but there's a part of me that has that larceny. Right. Yeah. With, uh, with Dylan, the only thing I really brought to that character, uh, for my own life is the love of the ocean. I sure. Gave, I gave it to him. Sure, I get that. We uh we had Casper Van Dien on the show. That's what I heard. Yeah, yeah. And first thing when it, when we asked him about nine hundred two and zero, he was like, he was like, yeah, you know, uh, I thought those guys were gonna be a couple assholes, you know, because so handsome. They you know got down there so famous. I showed up. They couldn't wait to shake my hand. Jason Priestley came right up to me. Hi, I'm Jason Priestley. I, I was like, yeah, I know who you are, you know. And then Luke Perry came up and was like, let's hang out. Let's go get a coke. Like everybody. Was, he was like, everyone was so nice to me. It was like the nicest set to be on. Well, it was a sanctuary. It was their home. Um, they, they, You really, you know, it was before social media. and Everybody points that out. Oh, yeah. But nonetheless, they really couldn't go outside in the same way. And you have long days with the television series. And that's, so they would spend, you know, 12, you know, hours a day together. Yeah. And they would just, they wouldn't go run to lunch. They wouldn't do that. They, they'd all pretty much stay in the, in the, you know, in our little suite of warehouses out in Van Nuys where we shot the show. And right? you were doing 29 episodes a season at that time, right? So it's like... After the first year, yeah. So that's basically like an extra eight weeks of work or nine weeks of work that people on other TV shows weren't... Uh... We crammed six and a half hours of television into five years. Wow. And it was really... we. I used to call the, the writers and the people, the production staff who worked, I called them the triathletes of television. Yeah. How many hours? How many years? Six and, oh, a, half, six years. Six and a half years right. into yeah. five years of television. Oh, my God. That's, that's outrageous. So it was glorified point and shoot to some respect. Mm -hmm. You didn't have as much time. You couldn't take as much care. And you had to... <clears throat> if you think about like the soaps that you know that are really wild and crazy. Like, mm -hmm. well, Melrose was that. Sure. Uh, the OC had that element. Models Inc. I'm just... Models Inc. I used to watch that one. <laughs> I, I have a, when we get to, to the point, I have a great Models Inc. story. But, awesome. um, but all of those, uh, you know, shows were just like, let's just do it as crazy and as fast as possible and we'll do this story and this story and they just move it. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like narrative on steroids. Mm -hmm. We, because we had so many episodes to do, had to hold everything back. Mm -hmm. So the plots moved much slower forward. So because of that, you're holding things back, you can do more character development. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. we were, and that was, I think, a plus of, of all those episodes. Now, I read mm -hmm. that when you first started on the show, you had... You went to Spelling and the network and said, hey, here's the plots for the first 12 episodes. And it was a whole serial thing. And then they came back and said, we want it to be more episodic than serialized. Is that really true that that's sort of how it came down? Or Yes, it was um, it, it, very interesting that we, um, we, we saw the show in serialized form mm -hmm. and we turned in our episodes 
and they uh, the network executive who uh, I you know I really shouldn't Paul Stupin um, uh, Dawson's Creek other producer um, at that point was Fox's guy and he started to um, you know criticize what we had done and explained that I to me because I didn't really have that much experience that I didn't really know how to do serialized drama and he brought up how they used to do it on St. Elsewhere. Wow. Excuse me. I you was the first story. year of St. Elsewhere. <laughs> I know how we did it, and this is how we did it. Yeah. But nonetheless, yes. it's it's their dime, mm-hmm. and we had to adjust. And I remember Darren Starr and I driving out to Malibu. Mr. Spelling had a place out there. If you're driving up the Pacific Coast and you see one brick house that you don't understand why they anyone would build a brick house on the beach that was the spelling house amazing and uh but we were there trying to sort things out and we we, we basically did i mean we basically if you think of those first 6 episodes there was one about a surfer girl surfer betty there was a where we introduce luke perry's character we've introduced dylan there was a shoplifting episode there was a, a basketball episode there was brandon's girlfriends comes there's a thing about um there was a sc- cheating in school and then the perfect mom episode that i alluded to with kelly taylor sure, yeah. so we had those six episodes with beef stories in this and we're feeling pretty good about them right so we turn them into the network and um, on July 3rd, <laughs> I was on the telephone with the network, Paul Stupin, and we um, went over every one of these episodes, mm-hmm. these little stories. And they were just like, here's the A story paragraph, here's the B story paragraph, yeah. and here's the, the, the real runner kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we fought over every one. Oh. And I, you know, it was like debate going back and forth and debate. And so... He says, um, ultimately, he doesn't say anything. And we, he said, well, let's move on to the next one. Let's move on to the next one. Let's, so it's a two-hour conversation. Had the scripts already been written at this no, point? No, no, this is just the okay. stories. But I, because we ended, and he didn't say, like, wrap it up, and this is what's going to happen, I called all my writing staff and said, start writing your scripts. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, start writing your stories. And two weeks later, we turned in six story outlines. Now, there were two other shows that Fox had, dramas. One was called Against the Law, and the other was called DEA. Mm -hmm. You don't know them because they had script problems. They couldn't do (laughs) enough scripts because Fox would, Barry Diller's Fox would meddle in those episodes a lot. But because we had our story outlines... Yeah. And and Mr. Spelling liked them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we got to write scripts and we weren't shut down. You know, one of the things we were talking about uh, that I came to the show through Northern Exposure and St. Elsewhere and, and what we learned, uh, you know, from those experiences. And I remember Josh Brand telling me this is that you can't make scripts your problem. Write the scripts, get the scripts done early, put them over here, because producing a television show is a difficult task, especially an hour show where you have the trucks and you're going out yeah. and all of that, that you don't want to keep screwing around with the with the scripts. Yeah, yeah. So that was one thing that we were able to um, survive uh, right from the start. Yeah, that's so smart. 
Um, can we throw in a little a, a little question about Brian Austin Green? Sure. What tell tell us about tell us about this kid? Well, he was the kid when he started out, right? Yeah, he, he was, was just a freshman he was, uh, boy, and he and, was dancing. And he was doing the hip hop dancing. Yes, right at the prom. <laughs> at and the that, prom, and we realized that we were boy. We didn't know he could dance like that. Yeah, and so and he was really cute, and he wanted to be more involved with the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And he had another uh, uh, his sidekick on the show, nice nice guy who played the character of Scott Scanlon. Okay, now that that storyline changed my entire life. That that this storyline with this with Scott Scanlon was like it was one of those mo- I have it I have it uh, starred as like one of the most influential episodes of of the show well, thank in you. the show's that, history. That's a Rosen episode. Uh, my my wife and I wrote that one. And I'll tell you how it it, it came about. Well, we had a big cast and uh, and Mr. Spelling looks at the cast and they wanted to uh, we, had, we had no money to spend. And mm-hmm. by the second year, they still said we didn't have very much and they wanted us to reduce the cast. And um, and I said, if you're going to do that and you want the character Scott Scanlon gone, let me kill him. <laughs> and, you know, so so um, and and. So what was interesting about that is that we kind of built that, you know, in the summer that David got to be with all the popular kids and, and Scott was off in Oklahoma with his grandparents and they had split up and it was a birthday and he dies in a gun accident. It is the only time that the, and I give Sandy Grushow and Aaron Spelling credit for this, it's the only time the two of them, Fox and uh, the production company, came and said, we don't want you to do this episode. And I said, I ha- we have to do it. And this is why I was very passionate about it. As Mr. Spelling once snarled at me during the first year, I'd be nothing without my passion. And he's not wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, really, really cared about this. And it came about because there was a, an accident, a gun accident at the Disneyland Hotel on prom night that I read about like a month before. And I thought that was the worst thing I had heard in a long mm-hmm. time. Like your prom is what? Oh, our prom was great. Yeah. When someone got murdered uh, or a gun accident. So I wanted to use it as such. And also I am um, not a card carrying member of the NRA mm-hmm. and uh, wasn't back then and was a card carrying member of the Brady handgun group. And so it really mattered to me to be able to, incorporate a social issue into the television show without being a preacher about it. And right. that, that's the fine line. So here is a kid having a birthday and can he get the popular kids to come and his mother's in the middle of it and all this stuff is going on. And in, yeah. and in the middle of it, uh, he wants to show his friend his gun and is twirling it around and he gets shot by his father's gun. Well, how many accidents do we have in the house? Yeah. It was, yeah. And then there was the whole thing. Oh, he committed suicide. No, he didn't commit suicide. It was a gun accident. Yeah. yeah. You know? No. Just yeah. like Law and Order, ripped from the headlines. Well, <laughs> but yeah, but here's the thing about about what what was so significant about that episode. And I really wish, because uh, Deadwood did it as well. I Milch did it on Deadwood, is they introduce a character they have everybody like this character and you think that everybody's safe on the show. Now they do it all the time. They 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 kill off a character. But not on like on Deadwood we expected that someone would die at some point. 
but not on Beverly Hills 90210. This was a, a fun, high young school kids. high school kids. Die. You don't think yeah. someone in that cast is suddenly going to be dead. Well, the audience was because Fox um, promotion promoted that episode as one of these characters are going to die. Watch this show. <laughs> no <Yeah>. way. <laughs> oh, we... We, it, we Oh, yeah, that kind of rings we, a bell now. We, it's so weird used that you to, say that. We used to battle a little bit with the promotion department at Fox because oh, yeah, they, yeah. you know, we had, we had cross purposes. They want to do anything they can to drive someone to watch it. And to do that, you're giving away our plot. What oh, are you yeah. doing? And they used to do that a lot. And we used to have to, I'd go to Sandy Grushow and say, help me, please. And his background, and we would, we would, Sandy was had every job at Fox and ended up being the president of the network uh, and then the president of it again, you know, a few years yeah. later. Yeah, no, I get All that. those people make movie trailers now and give away the entire plot of a movie in Seriously. 30 seconds. <laughs> well, when that happens, you know it's a bad movie. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because if they're talking yeah. the plot, they got nothing to do. Nothing else. You know? yeah. it, it definitely scared the crap out of me as a kid that uh, that, that could happen because I remember the scene is very, very... I mean, like... The, the the way they built it up too, guys, is that they built it up where it's like this kid, like Brian Austin Green is like the younger guy in the cast, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's got his buddy and and his buddy's kind of a little nerdy and like no one's going to go to the, the, the this, this guy's house for his birthday party. And it's like you can feel, you can just feel like the desperation in this house. Like the mom is like trying to have a birthday party for her son that like is not popular and, and 16, you know, 16 right. and it's very uncomfortable. And then he's hanging out in his uh, dad's office or, or his dad's bedroom and pulls out a gun and goes, hey, check it out. I got I got this, my dad's gun. I'm a cowboy. And he like does like a little spin of the gun and it drops and he, he shoots himself and dies. And in front of in front yeah, of Brian David, Austin Green. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, as an audience member who had been, wa- I've been watching the show since the first episode. I was like, well, yeah, but then he's going to be fine. Right. Because he's in the cast, you can't just kill a main cast member. But like, but you just can't kill off a main cast member, and then it it like settles in that like that character is dead, mm-hmm. and then you're like, like no, there are no TV shows on right now that 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 are doing anything like that. Like if that if that happened right now, it would affect kids in such an enormous way. I think it would make people more aware. I think I I thought it it, it definitely affected me. And made me kind of like af- afraid of well, guns. Well, also, you know, Dave, everybody's always in that episode's always going up to David Silver and going, how you doing, David? How you doing, David? And finally he erupts uh, on, you know, and so the, and, and the mic at the campus radio station is on. So mm-hmm. everybody hears it. And he does say this one bit of wisdom that my uh, collaborator, uh, my wife, Karen Rosen, wrote, which is basically it doesn't matter what you say about someone after they die it's how you treat them when they're alive and that was a very for a 15 year old kid crying Jeez. to be it had some power and it was yeah, good man. so it's one so we want to we won an award for that one and all right and uh it's known as the gun episode yeah, it really is um tori spelling um you got you got to fill me in a little bit on how this situation went down because i i know that you weren't there when she was cast or but how did this situation happen? Like, did he decide, did Aaron say like, this role is my daughter's role. And then he put her in. Or like, how did, how, like, 
Well, you know, I don't think that- I don't. You know, you needed a if you're going to have a gang, you needed yeah. a sidekick. So in the beginning, she was the sidekick, and she didn't have very many lines. Yeah. And in some of the early scripts for the first year, and even into the second year, a little bit, but certainly the first year, I have the notes that Spelling would write on the because he would read every script we would do, mm-hmm. and oftentimes, and he liked the scripts. He was he was very mostly very positive to what we were doing. But often one of the notes was, you know, lines for Tori, you know, like, can we, he related to 90210 as it was a vehicle for Tori. Got it. And, um, and Tori, uh, you know, we gave her an ep in the first season, we did an episode having to do with her establishing, she had a learning disability mm-hmm. and that was just a drama part. And she was, you know, getting a little edgy in this and she did. She did real well with that, but I think her 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 place in the show changed on that episode of Prom, the one where Brenda and Dylan do it, and she comes out with this kind of mermaid costume that's so strange she can't even sit in a chair with it. So the so we keep so her plot is having trouble sitting in a chair with a ridiculous uh, dress that it's she's very got comic on. Comic relief, and very she funny. was very funny. Yeah, she was hilarious, and she really had that quality to her as the comedian yeah. and uh and and aaron you know we appreciate it so then we started to really like writing for her a lot um she probably saved me without you even knowing this probably saved me in some of the battles i could have had because there were times i'm mad at the network i'm mad at spelling they're mad at me i need the because we're doing these political shows that are, have political content and there's a blowback on stuff like that and you know i could go to the cast and rile them up jason luke they're trying to stop us from doing this but oh tory's in the same room no i can't do that so it held me from not doing that and i was able to do the show for five years and not get canned very smart so thank you toy i love that i love that what was her relationship like with her dad while they were doing it were, were they were they like pretty good together because i know that they had trouble later that there was some weird or maybe she had family there was like you know i know she's had all sorts of family dramas but there were family dramas and there were family dramas then but of course there's uh, going to be family dramas but you know but in terms of um tori and i rarely spoke about her character she, um, when she had something to say, she would tell her dad and then her dad would say, you know, I was happened to be talking to Tori. Right. And I would sure. hear it that way. So, so truthfully in the cast, she was probably the one, uh, well, she and Shannon were the ones I had least relationships with. No, I got yeah. that. All right. Yeah. Now we, we, you, you said it. So we got to jump to the, the, the woman herself, Shannon Doherty, who probably has, um, she had more stuff, more stories that were flying around about Shannon Doherty while that show was going on than anybody else. Like I remember constantly hearing like, Oh, something crazy happened on set. Shannon Doherty, Shannon Doherty. And, uh, and then they just kept jumping at it. You know, we, they, they actually, someone in our makeup department was paid by one of the tabloids to just talk about whatever was there and feed them stuff. We, we, figure that out eventually oh my god um a few <laughs> you know things crazy. and they followed chan and so it was very unfair the here's a here's an interesting thing one of the uh people who really like with the shannon report and can you believe what this hollywood girl is doing it was a tv show that fox had ironically in syndication called a current affair 
Oh, Maury yeah. Povich's old show. And, and no, I'm going to predate that. Oh, the guy who was there giving scowling reports about Bill what O'Reilly? Mr. O'Reilly. Yes, yeah. it was. That's who it was. And so, uh, uh, so I always remember in that. Um, Shannon uh, was was there was a lot of always drama. She wanted to be center stage a lot. Um, you know, I felt sorry for her then because here's this girl, really cute. Lots of talent, lots of energy, very smart. She had Would been read... on that show with Wilford Brimley before. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that was he was not a good influence for her. Oh. <laughs> not a nice guy. She got diabetes, and then she was on the show. <laughs> no, no, no. Was he a bad influence? Really? Yeah. Wow. What? But Wilford Brimley? Wilford Brimley, um, how do I say this without being libel? <laughs> Don't don't worry about it. He doesn't really like the Hebrews in the business well, that he's yeah. in. <laughs> wow. And, nice. and so, you know, it was like, don't do things for the management. Don't do this. And he, he built, you know, after that show, you didn't hear that much about Wilfred Brimley anymore. Because <laughs> he, he, he did he, that one movie with Tom he, Cruise and then he did diabetes commercials. And then that's he, it. That he's no, he did now, a right? great movie with Jack Lemmon uh, um, the, um, and Jane Fonda, uh, China Syndrome. Okay. That that put him on the map. Yeah, but that was well wow. before. Yeah, yeah. But he uh so so I think it was a bad this but Shannon, look, this is this is everybody knows this. Um it's hard to be a child star. She was mm-hmm. a child star. And it's particularly hard to be a child star when the family is dependent on that child's income. Yeah. yeah. You don't have a childhood. So her childhood happened and, and the rebellious phase everybody goes through happened with the tabloids uh, chasing her all down. Yeah, sure. Um, did she say and do things that caused her problems with her fellow castmates, with the production company in this? We could spend the whole hour on it. But the yeah, fact sure. is, is that the great thing about Shannon Doherty, more than any of, and, I, and I've never seen anybody do this. So Shannon would, would uh, come to the set let's say in the first, second year, particularly when she was still really committed and, and it's, so she'd come in and she'd go, what's, what scene are we doing? Okay. We're doing this scene. What episode is this? It's this episode. Okay. And she'd look at it and she would use the blocking to memorize the scene she was in. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the major stuff, but I mean, she would do it that way. And she would um, always ask, unless she wanted to be released early so she could go to a rock concert, she would always ask to be shot second so that the close-up would be for her at the end so she could memorize and do it and all this. She never ad-libbed. She read every line the way it was intended to be that it was written. Mm -hmm. She had incredible instincts. And it was, I was really sorry that she didn't, as she progressed in her career, that she didn't get the kind of roles uh, that could feature that that craft that that was she was just a natural. Speaking well, of that, the the cast of this show had so many huge names at the time that the show was out, and now that it's twenty years later, you look back at what 25 else they twenty five years, years later, wow. and you look back at what has happened with some of them. Like, are you a bit surprised that somebody like say Luke Perry or Jason Priestley didn't go on to become like major Hollywood stars and other things? I mean, they've done other stuff. They've been working the whole time, but they never became like big movie stars and things like that. Um, does that sort of surprise you about some of the members of this cast? Like they didn't get that chance to go ahead and 
become huge household names? Not to, not to you know take this just for one second. I feel I feel like Luke Perry. I watched Luke in uh, John from Cincinnati, uh, which was a, a great show, but. They, but there was all sorts of problems with it, and you watched it going, God, he's so good, and yeah. you just want, you know, like, like I've, I you want more, a, you want to see more, you want to see. He's in like, a movie with Ashley Judd where he plays a bank robber that's really good. Yeah, he's, he's uh, that was a good guy. movie. And like, like I remember watching stuff like that, I'm like, oh, like, why don't we see more of him? You know, well, what happens is what we talked about in, in a variation, it's what happened with, when I was talking about Ian Zeering. He is, especially at that period of time, he looked the same as, he was Dylan McKay. Right. So it was hard for audiences to see him in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, it's a rough business. I always said everything, you know, I'd rather be lucky than good. You remember when I said, why did I get this job? It's because I was available. Right. What yeah. if I wasn't available? What would be? And it's the same with an actor. You know, you can't know... Look, there was nobody who expected Beverly Hills 90210. The order was for 12 episodes. We can't even get a story approved. You know, yeah. this show's not going 12 episodes. Yeah, this this is going to be, yeah. that's right. It's going to, it's going to capsize. So, so, you know, you never know that this would be the one that, they, that would give, you know, all of us such a profile. Yeah, absolutely. And you look, I mean, you know, so many actors from so many, you know, shows that, were like legendary shows where the whole cast, everyone's super recognizable. You know, it gets, it gets very, very difficult for them to, uh, yeah, eventually to be able you, to change their stripes and play somebody else. It's the, and you, you know, really it's the character actors that are allowed to do. If you think someone like John Goodman, mm-hmm. right. John yeah. Goodman can be in part after part after part. First of all, he's a terrific actor, of sure. course, but nonetheless, you know, he's not the leading man. Yeah. And our two leading men, you know, uh, you know, were, are, were they? If you look at them now, are they leading men in the in the you know dashing leading men way? And also, you know, things changed. They were associated with television, and in those years, the the line between yeah. television and features was very was a very was not a was it was was almost like a wall. Yeah. yeah, sure. It's changed a lot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, now it's just please anybody do anything and <laughs> yeah. we'll be happy. You know? but, but then, uh, it, then it was really difficult. And and as me as a as a television movie writer, there was no way that I was going to be ever taken seriously by the feature at business because I was a I was a movie I was a TV movie writer. It was yeah. a different feeling. Yeah, totally. And and that was that divide. If you think about the young actors who, at the time, who who were the ones that were able to cross over? I can think of only two, Johnny Depp and Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very, very So few. those were the two. And they weren't Jason Priestley and Luke yeah. Perry. It was those two guys. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's uh, timing. What timing about, uh, is everything. What about Luke Perry? Can you tell us a little bit about what, nobody, it, what he was like? Nobody was more committed to the character and the show than Luke. Um he was so cool. Luke used to call, I call it my morning wake up call by Luke. Luke would call me to um, go over the, the, whatever he was shooting that day and always asking for changes in the script uh, of his dialogue. And oftentimes, it, so my feeling was, is that unless there was something specific about the language, either the rhythm of the words or something else, if you want to change the words up and I'm going to take away the same thing from it, I mean, whatever's going to be communicated in that scene is going to happen, say it in your own way. I don't care. Unless the line needs to be a certain way for sure. whatever reason. 
So I used to say to Luke often, let's shoot it both ways. And Luke would go, okay, great. It took him about three years to realize that I never used the way that he wanted to do it. I always <laughs> used the other. But we uh, so smart. But I admire him a lot. You know, I remember once we did we're battling over a script, and uh, and I he said to me, I said, you know, def- what what a writer would say, defer to the name on the page, and he said, I'm going to be this guy for the rest of my life, you know, and and so I need him to be a certain way. And uh, especially after the show mm-hmm. was now a hit and we yeah. would know we're grappling. But he really was a salt of an earth guy. You know, you read about him. He's from Ohio. He came to L.A. He he worked on laying asphalt on the street. You know, he was uh, in a soap opera. I mean, he he was someone who, who was so far removed from the character he was playing, you know, the rich boy at the Bellage Hotel. And I think right. that interesting tension um, he he really tapped into. Well, here's something. I'm sorry to I keep jumping past you guys, but I this has always been so interesting to me. When we were doing Big Time Rush, this Nickelodeon show, uh, for the first year, the show was not on the air while we were shooting it. For the first season, we shot almost the first season without anyone knowing whether or not it was going to be a, a hit. And then it came out, and immediately it was the highest rated show Nickelodeon had ever had. Like it was, it was premiere wise. Like the numbers were insane. So they picked us up for like a back nine and then they picked us up immediately for a second season and everybody, the the energy around the show started changing and the attitudes of our cast started changing. And then like they went away. The cast went away between first season and second season to go on tour as a band and perform and open for like big giant people like Justin Bieber and all stuff. And then they came back and they were totally different people. Now, I love these guys. I adore these four guys for life. But when they came back from being on tour and performing in front of 80,000 people at a time and stuff with Bieber and all these other guys, they were completely different guys. And their attitudes as far as like, cars and their houses and money and and like what kind of dog they were going to get and how bad how how that dog was going to be trained their you know hat by size changed yeah ev- what's that their hat size changed oh yeah 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 everything started changing with these guys when when did that occur with this show because there's got to be a point where everyone realizes that this show is like a huge massive thing that's changing the culture like when did it? Did, was well, there? I think was there, there was a, a time in the? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember the um, there was a Laker playoff game at the Forum, and I had season tickets, and I want and Jason come to the game with me, mm-hmm. and Priestley is really concerned because we're now we're already a hit. It's it's May. It's the Lakers with playoff, and we're already a hit. So people. So Jason is thinking, God, I've got to walk there and be there and be in public. I don't know. And this, and we walk in there and uh, we walk from where we ate. We had to walk all the way around to the seats and come up there. Nobody cared. And by the way, by the end of the time, Jason is talking to the woman next to him going, yeah, it's a show on Fox. I'm the, the you know, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the. You know, one of the things that really did cause a rift between the, particularly Jason and Luke, is that because they were the young st- young guys, young stars, Tiger Beat took them over, oh, and yeah. they were in oh. all of the kid, the teeny bopper thing, and they mm-hmm. did not want to be there. So, 
usually what I say about, uh, you know, the Blaze podcast. Uh, oh, give yeah. them a plug. Uh, yeah, the, Blaze the podcast cat. is awesome. If you enjoy, if you're a big 90210 fan, you got to check it out. It's uh, it's incredible. They got lots and, of great people. And I, what I once said to them is that it really, there is almost nobody, I think except for Jenny Garth, that was involved with this show that didn't at one point feel the prevailing ambivalence that was under the current of everything that we were doing. That, that we couldn't do it the way that we wanted. We had a lot of, um, you know, wanted to go deeper and edgier and couldn't really do that so much. And so, and it probably was a good thing, you know, quite frankly, because it, it allowed us to, you know, um, uh, have people watch the show, think they're going to be watching one thing and, oh no, it's about something different mm-hmm. and and we enjoyed that and there was a period of time before it really became a balls to the walls serialized television show which it did in the high school near the end of the high school but certainly after that once the college one even in the college years you really didn't know those who watched it really didn't know what the tone of a given episode was going to be were we going to be really lighthearted? was it mm-hmm. going to be a social issue was it going to be all about romance was a character in jeopardy whatever it would be. And so I like that. I like the fact that it would keep an audience guessing. Well, that is completely an anathema to uh, a network that wants every, you know, the every episode to be a variation of itself. Right. Sure. So after I left the show, the show became much more, uh, fulfilled the expectations of the audience rather than, uh, pull the audience on a, on a ride. They're not expecting to go on. Got it. But did you see them as far as I'm not, I'm sorry to jump back to this, but did you see them like argue about cars or about, th- about their lives? Material? material things? No, not at all. None of that stuff. No, no. Uh-huh. Jason was a pretty good businessman. So he was investing in stock markets. How old like. were these guys when this was happening? Like in their early, well, Jason turned 21 while we were right starting off on our second season. Man. So they were very young. Luke was a little older. Gabby was the old. She was like 28, I think. Ian was 26. But you know, Tori and, and Brian were barely 18. Oh, my God. You know. Now, why were there no fat guys on the show? Now, this is a big issue to me. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, every you time I... You, you never came in. <laughs> what was that? You come in, you'd get it immediately. I was like, there's no, there's no fat guys. They need like a fat guy. They're like Beverly a fat, Hills. There, no, there's no fat guys in Beverly Hills ever. There's no fat guys in Beverly Hills. They all get sucked out right away. They, they just, they, yeah, they they're at the Pinkberry in Beverly right. Hills. It's <laughs> the only place you find them. There's a lot of Persians in Beverly Hills. There's a lot of Persians in Beverly Hills. Not a lot of Persians on 902 I don't think. We could have used a couple of, we could have used a couple of Persians. Yeah. Well, you know, if I, if I, you know, one of the reasons I left the show when I did is I didn't have many more ideas for stories. I get that. Persians, fat guys. I could have stayed all there if I would have known you guys. You know what else? We would have, we have to what they say about Larry David when he left Seinfeld. He's like, I'm out. I'm out. Done. Got Done. no more, no more stories. And then he went and made a whole other show. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, you know, uh, I think I think uh, it's it's good that the show happened when it did because and we talked about this a little bit with Seinfeld too is that like technology ru- kind of ruins a show like that and when they tried to relaunch <sighs> Beverly Hills 90210 on what what network CW that was CW mm-hmm. 
like technology kind of ruins a show like that. Like everybody texting and talking, you know, Snapchatting each other and stuff. I, I re- do you, are you kind of with me on that? Because when we, when we read through the script, it was so noticeable when, the, when she'd be like, I'm working on my typewriter, give me five minutes, you know? And you're like, or like uh, the other girl was like, I got quarters for the phone. I promise, you know? And you're like, man, oh man, if they had cell phones, so many things well, one or thing, Uber, well, like, <laughs> there would be no drunken driving episodes in the first summer episodes we did um there was a scene where jenny garth is driving down san vicente in brentwood and she's talking on her phone as she's in the convertible bmw Mm -hmm. and the network called me and one network executive uh who i like so i'm not going to say his name um and he, you, you know, the show's gone now. You've ruined it. We want to make these kids ordinary kids. And you got one talking on a cell phone driving a car. Hilarious. Because you know, it was brand new. So, yeah, we yeah. did. But, you know, we, inter- particularly in the college years, we integrated um, uh, the computer age into our show. We did, sure. we did, uh, we showed a chat rooms when we did an episode oh, about the Rolling God. Stones in 1994. Oh we did a God. parody of the Real World. So we were oh, we yeah, were yeah. we were you know aware of of what was coming. But it's interesting. I so I leave the show in 1995. In 2000 they the show ends. It mm-hmm. ended to some, you know it, it it struggled in the ratings for a few years, but that ending the final episode did really well. So they wanted to do a um, a kind of a like a, see if we can make it a movie franchise for Fox. Mm-hmm. So Spelling asked me to do that, and I come back to him with the way that I want to do the outline and the series and stuff, and I start talking about. The impact of computers, 2000 already. Yeah. My daughter's 15 years old. I, I know the seeing the impact of computers on, on social more spelling was getting a little more older then, a little more successful, a little more can- cantankerous. And he goes, no computers, no computers. You can't have computers. And fortunately, <laughs> there was a variety. I remember sitting on the desk in, in the office we were in. I said, look at the headline, Aaron, variety. It's about AOL. How can you not have us do computers it's the world that these kids are living in we could have seen a movie where dylan got catfished but but he's kind of yeah you know uh i mean it 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 does take away uh uh some of that um you know the cell phone you know because it you know there was so much mileage you could get was i'm gonna meet you here and then doesn't show up in in this because there was really what would you do what happened and the suspense of all of that now it's you know Text me. I'm I'm running late. You know, or whatever it would be. Uh, well, listen. We uh, I I I threw a little poll out on Twitter of like some of the most like you know what what people's uh, favorite episodes were, and so we have just I have a couple quick questions for you before we wrap this thing up. Okay. Um, uh, Dylan's dad exploding. Yes. That is that was a, a big that was a big one. It was a very impactful on a lot of people. It was another big death on the show that people weren't expecting to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, how that how that went down and and why? Sure. Well, or if you have any story about like about that that particular episode when it happened. Well, we wanted to. Um, 
you know, you have different things going on at the same. When you're telling a serialized story, and here's Dylan, and he's now with Kelly, and there's Brenda over here, and all this. And so, if you remember, after the dad does blow up, mm-hmm. here's the two girls, and his girlfriend is Kelly, and Kelly does can't comfort him at that time, and Brenda can. So why is he with Kelly and not Brenda? You know, so it's sure. still that still pushed through, um, but. You know, we were always looking for... Well, what I wanted to do, oddly enough, Luke Perry said, you can't do this. And then I think they ended up doing it anyway. I wanted to make it that he didn't die in the in the blow-up and that it was an undercover thing for the FBI. And I wanted to take the crime thing in a different way. Uh, the crime thing, the fact that he had a father who was wealthy and embezzled came mm-hmm. totally. My motto as a writer, by the way, is steal from the best. Sure, yeah. So I stole from say any, anything, mm-hmm. and where Ioni Sky's father was a was a crook, a criminal, yeah. and so I wanted that to be, and I we lifted it and did it here. Great, but but Luke said I couldn't bring him back because he heard we were thinking about it because that's a really bad soap convention. And I don't watch soap operas, so I said, okay, if that's that's the case. But it was important, you know, to know that, you know, here it was, here's this guy, the Notorious, and you find out that's what you think he is, but he was actually a good guy trying to trap them. And yeah. the thing I think was what, what we were able to do in kind of Luke's life and, uh, excuse me, Dylan's life, is that the father, uh, you know, by blowing up that way it looks like he's a bad guy but he at least luke knew he was good and we able use that in a spiritual way that oftentimes the image of the father would come to him and uh, at times of crisis at other times in the as we would do the series yeah yeah um all right here's another one we got um we, we there was a question about donna martin graduates and um and i if you don't mind telling the story that you told me about ian Ziering during the taping of that episode. Is that okay? Do you mind? Absolutely. All right. No, nothing to be ashamed of. So what, as I said in the other night, what rhymes with graduates? How about masturbates? (laughs) (laughs) And if you're a professional virgin, like Donna Martin was it somehow you can think about masturbation, uh, as a survival technique. (laughs) And Ian Ziering is, you know, he's always there. He is, you know, trying to scramble it up and do it. So he started saying on the track, instead of, we had hundreds of extras there, you're starting to hear, they're not saying Donna Martin graduates, they're saying Donna Martin masturbates. And Priestley got right into it, and they're doing this and doing this. And we're, we don't, I'm not ever on the set. Well, certainly I'm on the set sometimes. I wasn't on, I was on the set when the car blew up. I wasn't on the set for this one. Amazing. So, uh, we're we're in there and we're listening and the editor says, can you hear this on the track? I, I don't think, listen to this. And I'm listening and I go, oh my God, what is this? And I bring in the other ones and I just think, okay, you know, it's kind of, we'll just put it here and whatever, we'll put it out there for, you know, well, Mr. Spelling at that point, he was an older, he, he couldn't hear shit. So he, he didn't know what was going on. The censor didn't get it. So I believe unless they've remixed it, you go back to that episode. Listen closely. Oh, so good. It's so good. Um, all right. Um, but before we uh, before we wrap this thing up, just real quick. I know that you did a little work on another TV show. I know you've worked on a lot of TV shows, but you did, you did work on Dawson's Creek as well. 
And uh, that was such an enormous, massive show and launched a whole bunch of people's careers um, that have, you know, people who have, you know, gone on yeah, to no, like that's huge, it. huge, why, massive success. You know, why are they, why did they become movie stars? Yeah. And, yeah. and when you were saying before, why didn't the other group here become movie stars? It's, it's that, you know, spelling you talk about that, that stardust. Mm-hmm. And you really, I mean, I can tell you that meeting Michelle... Uh, when she was 16, 17, she was, and, and Josh Jackson, I mean, yeah. these were fully formed people as was Katie Holmes. So I yeah. had, so three out of four is not bad. James and, you know, and I, we never really bonded quite as much as I did with the other three. Sure. Um, and it was nice. My wife ran into Katie when she was coming out of a, uh, department store in Beverly Hills, right at the height of her with the Tomcat thing. And mm-hmm. Karen goes up to her and says, hi, you know, I'm Chuck Rosen's wife from Dawson's Creek. And she got big smile. I, the one that told um, uh, Katie, was sitting at a, on a bench, um, like the show you described at Nickelodeon. Dawson's Creek was filmed and finished before it aired. So wow. it, it went out of production before. So I'm down there in the last episode of the first year and I'm sitting and, and it was more of like a guest star by that point. Cause I wasn't as active in the day to day on Dawson's as I might've liked to have been, but there I was with Katie and uh, I said to her, Katie, you got to remember this is the last time. I'm, you're going to be able to do this. Just sit in the bench with me and watch people go by. They don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to know who you are. I think you're going to be a big star. Wow. And uh, sh- they should do. Well, I have to say thank you for that because your work on Dawson's Creek helped make Katie Holmes a star. And that allowed us to have Tom Cruise meet her. And we got to see Tom Cruise jump up and down an Oprah. And that never would have happened if it wasn't for Dawson's Creek. So I thank you for that. That's 100% true. Yeah. It really is. I, I, I give you full credit for Tom Cruise becoming a <laughs> lunatic on Oprah. And I thank you for it. <laughs> yeah, I'll share that credit with Scientology. But yes. <laughs> yes so. I thank I thank Ron Hubbard for it. That is one man, of oh man. Because oh that man. is one of my favorite things in the last oh, 10 years. Man, that <laughs> was really <laughs> changed, changed the world. I love it. Um... Okay, uh, Chuck. Where can people find you? Is there a plate? Can they find you at your home? Uh, where? No. Where can they find? Where? Where can they look you up if they want to see what what's coming next in your life, or what do you have going on now in your life? Well, I uh, I live in Venice Beach, and I just finished if my first. You know, I, there's a certain point I was writing a lot, and then I, you know, you you're not on the lists anymore, mm-hmm. and so I used to call the the entertainment business the remnant of what it was, not quite as collegial, not quite too too business focused, too much competition, too many different things. When we did it, we were the main drag. You you watched ABC, CBS, NBC and Fox less than that. But yeah. we were it. There wasn't it. allowed to do you know the cables which is who would watch mm-hmm. that stuff, you know, and and it, that obviously changed. The business changed dramatically. And uh, the kind of stuff that I gravitated to wasn't quite being done in the same way. And so I took a foray into tech, not the wisest thing to do, but did that for a couple of years. I taught at UCLA uh, in the writer's program for a number of years and and would write scripts uh, for television and uh, get good praise, get agents out of it, get this, but really just not at this point in my career happening. And so, you know, I can, I can accept that because I get pleasure from the writing part of it, mm-hmm. especially writing without having to worry about career. Right. Sure. So I have just today finished 
my first screenplay of the 21st century. Wow. Because, Amazing. Because I write television all those years. Mm-hmm. But this is, you know, not that many screenplays. And so this is a script um, set in the 1940s in Los Angeles from 42 and Las Vegas from 42 to 47. Um, could be called Stories My Daddy Told Me. But mm-hmm. I'm, I really enjoyed it, uh, doing it. And that's the thing about, you know, getting the pleasure. So I you know, live vicariously through my very successful daughter, Lindsay, and I'm waiting for her to get a show on the air so that I can become uh, uh, gainfully employed again. I love it. So Lindsay is constantly directing. She's She constantly. writes, she directs, she's after Lindsay Rosen. The book is called Cherry. It'll be out on August 16th, Simon mm-hmm. & Schuster. Check it out. It's getting Amazing. incredible reviews. It's a wonderful book. In fact, it truthfully is what we did at 90210 in those early years in high school, 25 years later. It deals with f- female sexuality, teenage sexuality, in a way that um, does uh, her father and mother proud. I love it. That's so great. What is she? What, are the, what, t- what TV shows does she? She's directed a bunch of shows. We're not directing. She directed R- Cruel written, Intentions. She's written, yeah. And then Cruel Intentions, the musical. Oh, yeah, which of direct, course. And then, and then it became Cruel Intentions, the television series, yeah. which mm-hmm. is yeah. in limbo at NBC. Amazing. But she's been writing scripts. She's been writing plays since she's been 15, yeah. and so Cruel she's been doing it a long time. Cruel Intentions is the one time. where Sarah Michelle Gellar made out with... Uh, Selma Blair. Selma Blair. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One of my favorite scenes of the last 15 years in a movie. I you, love that scene and I love You this. and every other heterosexual <laughs> man. <Yes. laughs> I love it. And uh, hey, uh, Chuck, thank you so much for coming and being a part of this. This my is pleasure. amazing and it was so cool to take a, a walk through uh, uh, one the of zip our code. favorite shows. Yeah, yeah, through the zip code. That was what it will say on my tombstone. He changed the way America looked at the zip codes. (laughs) 100%. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. You bet. Talk to you soon.